Okay, let's take our Bibles this morning. Turn with me to Luke and chapter 10. Luke chapter 10 this morning, and we're just going to read verse 25, and then we'll have a word of prayer. Luke chapter 10, verse 25, it says, And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Let's commit our time to the Lord in prayer. Lord, Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this wonderful day. We thank you so much, Lord, that we are able to be here this morning that we're able to take time out and gather, sing praises unto your name, and Lord, to come now around your word. And I pray, Lord, that this morning you would prepare our hearts to receive from you, <clears throat> that, Lord, you would meet each of us where we're at, that you would refresh us, uh, challenge us through your word this morning. And Lord, I pray that you would empower me now through the Spirit, you give me wisdom and guidance as I speak, Lord, it would be your words, it would be your thoughts, and that, Lord, your name would be honoured, glorified and praised. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And before us this morning in Luke chapter 10 is one of our Lord's most famous uh, parables, the parable of the good Samaritan. And Scott already read through it all for us, so we won't read it again right now. But we all know the, the story well, the story of the good Samaritan. It's a parable that teaches a wonderful truth concerning the matter of love, concerning the matter of being loving towards our neighbor. And you know, because it's concerning this idea of love or being charitable, you know, the world loves this parable. And indeed, you know, most people know the story of the good Samaritan. You know, for this reason, the name Samaritan has become synonymous with being charitable unto others. You know, you see hospitals that are named the Samaritan Hospital, or you hear about the Good Samaritan Services. And so we've taken that name Samaritan and it's now synonymous with being a charitable person or a charitable organization. However, the parable was actually given by the Lord to teach more than simply a principle on charity. As we'll see this morning, the the parable is actually given in response to a lawyer who comes asking the Lord a question. In verse 25, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? You see, this man thought that salvation was something that he could earn. And so Christ sets about uh, correcting his understanding. And Christ gives the parable to show him that he cannot earn his salvation. You know, sadly, many have missed this point, and instead they have thought that somehow they can earn their salvation, eternal life, by obeying the gospel of the good Samaritan. You know, that if they show love and charity unto others, that will get them into heaven. Ironside, he wrote this. He said, people generally think of the parable of the good Samaritan as simply setting forth a lesson in charity and concern for those who are less fortunate than we. Recently, one said to me, this is Einstein talking, he says, Recently, one said to me, I do not need an atonement for my sins. The religion of the good Samaritan is good enough for me. 
He was basing his hopes for eternity upon doing good to his fellow man, forgetting that on this ground all are under condemnation. For no man, save our blessed Lord, ever truly loved his neighbour as himself. To face the implications of this story honestly is to realise the utter impossibility of obtaining eternal life by doing. And so that's how we want to approach the passage this morning. We want to approach it realising how Christ was teaching it. What was Christ actually saying to us? And so with that in mind, let's begin this morning by considering, first of all, the prompting of the parable. The prompting of the parable. Look with me in verse 25. It says, And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said unto him, What is written in the law? How readest thou? He, and, and, sorry, and he answering said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength, with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. And he said unto him, Thou hast answered right. This do, and thou shalt live. But he, willing to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? In verse 25, we see it begins with a certain lawyer standing up and he asks the Lord a question. Now, the title lawyer here doesn't mean that he's an expert in civil law, which is how we use the title today. Rather, it speaks of him being an expert in the law of God. And so this man, a lawyer, you could call him a theologian. That's really what he is. Okay? He's a theologian. Uh, the commentator Lockyer said this, it was his official business to interpret the law of God and provide, gu sorry, provide guidance to people on how to relate their life to it. If a Jew had difficulty, he could consult a lawyer or scribe to find out what the law said on the matter of behavior troubling him. And so this man is someone who is well versed in the law of God. He knows the scriptures well. And he comes now and he asks the Lord, this question, he says, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And so his question is concerning this, this matter, this most important matter of eternal life, salvation, eternity with the Lord. You know, there's no greater, there's no more important subject to ask a question about. You know, earlier in our study of the parables, we saw another young man ask a very similar question of the Lord. Go back with me to Matthew chapter 19. We looked at this parable a little while ago. <clears throat> Matthew 19 and verse 16. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 19 verse 16 it says, And behold, one came and said unto him, Good master, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life. In Matthew chapter 16, we saw the rich young ruler come and ask the Lord basically the same question. What should I do? What good thing shall I do to obtain eternal life? You know, while both these men ask a good question, they're asking about an important subject, the most important subject, eternal life. While they're asking about something so important, there is a serious problem with both of their questions. It's that little word, do. What shall I do? 
to inherit eternal life. You see, both men, the rich young ruler and now this lawyer, both men thought that eternal life was something that can be obtained by good works, by their actions. You know, by doing good, they could earn eternal life in heaven one day. You know, sadly, this is the thinking of many in the world today. You know, their good works, their efforts here on earth will earn them eternal life. You know, eternal life is not something that can be earned. It's a free gift offered to all by faith. Ephesians chapter 2, let's turn there. Ephesians 2. I know many of us know these verses, but let's turn there. Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9. These are glorious verses. Ephesians 2 and verse 8, it says, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Ephesians 2 and 9 sums up the truth wonderfully, doesn't it? Salvation is the gift of God, made possible by the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. His death, burial and resurrection has made it possible for us to be saved by having simple faith in Him. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. You see, eternal life is by faith in Him and His finished work there on the cross. That is the wonderful truth of the gospel. And so this man, he comes asking an important question about the most important subject. But he comes with a wrong understanding. A wrong understanding of his own sin and guilt before God. And the fact that it's condemning him and that he can do nothing to earn his salvation. He has a wrong understanding. You see, he thought there was something he could do that would earn him eternal life. And we see that he also came with a wrong motivation Again in verse 25, and behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? We're told that he tempted the Lord here with his question. This word tempted speaks of him testing the Lord. And so he's not even asking the question sincerely because he already believes he knows the answer. Okay, he believes he has the answer to this question. He's testing what the Lord says about this. He's testing the Lord. He's trying to get the Lord to embarrass himself in front of the crowd, trying to get the Lord to trip up and say something that will discredit him before the crowd. And so he's not even asking the question sincerely. And in verse 26, we see that the Lord responds by throwing the question back on him. Verse 26 says, He said unto him, What is written in the law? How readest thou? And so the Lord doesn't respond here by giving him the answer. Instead, the Lord turns it around and he puts the question back on the lawyer. You see, the Lord knew he wasn't asking sincerely. The Lord also knew his heart. He knew that this man had a wrong understanding of where he stood before God. And so the Lord puts the question back on him. He says, how do you interpret the law? You're a lawyer. How do you interpret God's law? And the lawyer now responds by demonstrating that he actually has a very good understanding 
of the scriptures. He's actually very good at his job. Look at verse 27 with me. It says, And the answering said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy hearts, and with all thy soul, and with all thy strength, and with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. The lawyer now responds really well. He sums up Old Testament truth concerning the law. And his response here combines two Old Testament passages. Jeremiah chapter 6 and then Leviticus chapter 19. Let's turn there and read both of these verses. <clears throat> so Jeremiah first, Jeremiah chapter 6. <clears throat> in Deuteronomy 6 and verse 5, it says, And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy might. And so he's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 5. And then he also quotes from Leviticus 19. Turn over there, Leviticus 19. <clears throat> Leviticus 19 and verse 18 says, Thou shalt not avenge, nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am the Lord. And so he quotes from these two Old Testament passages and he puts the two together. And his response shows to us that he has a good understanding of the Old Testament law. He understands that in these two quotes from the Old Testament is the summation of the whole law. Love God with your whole mind, your soul, your heart, and love your neighbor as yourself. It sums up the law. If anyone could truly love God and their neighbor perfectly, they would indeed fulfill the law. They would keep the Ten Commandments. Because you know, the first half of those Ten Commandments is all about our relationship with God. The second half is our treatment of our fellow man. So if you love God, you treat God right. If we love man, we treat our fellow man right. And you know, this was actually something Christ himself taught in his ministry. Go with me to Matthew chapter 22. <clears throat> Matthew 22 and verse 34 says, But when the Pharisees had heard that he had put the Sadducees to silence, they were gathered together. And one of them, which was a lawyer, asked him a question, tempting him and saying, Master, which is the greatest, sorry, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Here we see a similar situation. Okay, a lawyer asks the Lord a question, which is the most important law? And what does Christ do? He gives him this same summation of the law. Love God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And in verse 40, Christ says, On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. You do these two and you'll obey the whole law. You'll be perfect before God. And so this man's response is actually 
quite good. It's really good, isn't it? It's the response the Lord gives on another occasion. He gives a perfect summation of the law and a perfect summation of what it would take to be righteous according to the law. And in verse 28 of our present passage, Luke chapter 10, verse 28, the Lord commends him for his answer, doesn't he? Verse 28, it says, And he said unto him, Thou hast answered right. This do, and thou shalt live. Christ says to him, he says, you've answered correctly. You've answered right. The lawyer had asked the question, What shall I do? What shall I do to inherit eternal life? He'd answered, I need to keep the whole law. And Christ says, yeah, you've, you've answered correctly. To earn eternal life, you must be perfect according to the law. You must love God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and you must love your neighbor as yourself. For this is the fulfillment of the law. Christ even says to him, he says, this do and thou shalt live. He says, if you do this, if you keep the law perfectly, you will live. You will have eternal life. Now, don't misunderstand the law here, the Lord here, okay? Christ is not teaching works salvation. He's not. He's not teaching works salvation here at all. The lawyer thought he could earn salvation. He could work for it. And Christ now is pointing out just how impossible that really is. He says, you know, what does the law say? He gives him the answer. He says, well, do it. He puts it back on the lawyer. He says, you can't do this. It's an impossibility. You see, the problem is that no one can keep the law perfectly. It's an impossibility for sinful man. The commentator Butler, he said this, the works required in the words quoted by the lawyer were so great that they were too high for man to fill. So while the answer was the right one, there was an insurmountable problem with it. Likewise, Robinson, he said this, the trouble with the lawyer's answer was that no one ever did and ever can do what the law lays down towards God and man always. To slip once is to fail. That's the whole point. He's given the summation of the law. Yeah, you need to be perfect to earn eternal life but the point is no one can do that no one can be perfect indeed james chapter 2 and verse 10 let's turn there james 2 <clears throat> makes it clear that one sin it's all it takes to be guilty of the whole law james 2 <clears throat> and verse 10 says for whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. God's Word makes it abundantly clear it only takes one sin to be guilty. You only have to break the law once to be a sinner. You've, you've disobeyed the law of God. You're guilty. You see, no one can perfectly keep God's law. And so while the lawyer's answer was correct, it's an impossibility. You see, the only one who has ever kept the law perfectly is the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God. You know, it's important for us also to note at this point that God's law was never given as a means of salvation. He didn't give it to us so that we might earn our salvation because He knows we can't keep the law. The law was given to show us that we are sinners. The law was given to show us our guilt before God, that we need a Savior. 
Turn over to Galatians 3 quickly with me. Galatians chapter 3, verse 24. <clears throat> Galatians 3, and verse 24. <clears throat> it says, Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us under Christ that we might be justified by faith. The law was our schoolmaster. The law was given to show us that we needed a saviour, to show us that we're sinners. It was to point us to Christ so that we might be saved by faith. You know, at this point in the conversation, if the lawyer was honest with himself, he should have acknowledged his sin and said, Lord, no one can keep the law. What's the answer? What's the answer? Henriksen said this, If only the law expert would now admit this. If only he will cry out, O God, be merciful to me, the sinner. If he will do this, Jesus can supply the further answer to the lawyer's question, that answer being, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You see, if he at this point had acknowledged his sin, the Lord would have given him the answer. Come unto me. You know, sadly, we don't see this man humble himself. We don't see this man at this point acknowledge his sin and cry out for mercy. Instead, he immediately seeks to justify himself. Look at verse 29. But he, willing to justify himself, said unto Jesus, And who is my neighbor? He immediately now seeks to show how he is righteous according to the law because he's given the answer. Love God, love your neighbor, and he believes he's doing that. He believes he's justified. It says here, but he willing to justify himself. In other words, that word willing there means determined. And so he is determined to justify himself to the Lord and indeed the crowd, to justify himself. And to him, the only real question at this point is how you define your neighbor. Who is my neighbor? That tells us a lot about this man, doesn't it? He skips completely over the first law. Love God with all your heart, with all your soul, your all, all your mind. He doesn't ask anything about what that truly means. What does it truly mean to love God with your whole heart? You see, he feels like he's got that relationship all down pat. He loves God. And as far as loving his neighbor is concerned, he believes he's righteous in that sense as well. But he wants to know how does Christ define someone's neighbor. You see, there were differing opinions amongst the Jews on this. But all of them, all of the teachings concerning neighbor narrowed it right down to just a select few. Most said that your neighbor was any fellow Israelite. So if they were a fellow Jew... Yes, they were your neighbor and you had to love them. But if they weren't, you had to hate them because they weren't a Jew. The Pharisees, they narrowed this even further and they said, you only had to show this kind of love to your fellow Pharisee or someone who was righteous, someone who's living according to the law. So they narrowed it even more. But not only this, they also narrowed the time when this law applied and when they were responsible to obey it. You know, for instance, they ask questions, you know, was it the Sabbath day? Well, if it's the Sabbath, I can't help, can I? 
You know, will I be defiled by helping this person? Well, no, I can't help. You see, they added all these extra things which got them out of their responsibility. You see, they added rules. Essentially, they gave themselves loopholes, ways of not showing love unto their neighbor. The point is, the religious leaders, this lawyer included, they had very narrow views of what this meant. And they thought that they were justified in their actions. And so this man, he asked his question, who is my neighbor? And what he is seeking here is validation from the Lord for his understanding. Now, as an expert in the law, he believed his own narrow interpretation is correct. And he was righteous and he wants the Lord now to confirm that. He wants the Lord to agree with him. But you know, the Lord, he doesn't do that, does he? Instead, the Lord now gives what we know, the parable of the good Samaritan. And by giving this parable, the Lord actually enlarges the meaning, doesn't he? He doesn't narrow it, he enlarges it. He enlarges this meaning of what one's neighbor is to far beyond what the lawyer ever expected and far beyond what anyone else in that crowd ever expected. And by doing so, he demonstrates clearly this man's guilt before God. You see, this man didn't love his neighbor, as God's law required, and therefore he didn't love God, as God's law required, and therefore he was guilty. He was guilty before God. So let's consider now, secondly, the lesson of the parable. The lesson of the parable, let's read from verse 30. It says, And Jesus answering said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment, and wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. And by chance there came down a certain priest that way, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him, and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him, and went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And on the morrow when he had departed, he took out two pence, and gave them to the host, and said unto him, Take care of him, and whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I will repay thee. Now that we've understood the context in which Christ actually gave this parable, we can see that this parable story is much more than just a story about being charitable. It's more than that. This parable was given by the Lord to highlight the lawyer's sin, to highlight his guilt before God and his need of a saviour. And so with that in mind, let's consider this story here. The story, of course, begins in verse 30 with a man traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho and along the way he is robbed he is beaten he is left for dead let's just read verse 30 and Jesus answering said a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him and departed leaving him half dead the Lord here is referring to something that was known to happen okay the road from Jerusalem down to Jericho was notoriously rough it was notoriously dangerous Spence, he said this, it was, was a rugged, rocky pass, well adapted for the purpose of thieves and desperados, and was known 
owing to the many dark deeds of which it had been the scene as the way of blood. You see, this road was known to be dangerous. Okay, so the Lord is referring to something they all know about. They all know the state of this road and they know that people are robbed constantly on this road. So it's a story that rings true for those who are listening. And the man in Christ's parable, he's robbed, he's stripped, he's taken everything he owned and he's left to die. And as he's lying in this state, we see three men now come and they each respond differently to this man lying dead on the side of, or dying, sorry, on the side of the road. The first, of course, is the priest, verse 31. And by chance they came down a certain priest that way, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now, the first is a priest. Now, as a priest, that tells us that this is someone who is serving at the temple, okay, there in Jerusalem. And the fact that he's traveling away from Jerusalem down to Jericho suggests to us that he is heading home. Okay, many of the priests lived in Jericho. And so it suggests that he is heading home. So he's been at the temple. He's been engaged in worshipping the Lord. And now he's on his way home. Surely this man, out of everyone, this man should have known what it meant to show love under someone else. This man should have been ready to show love and compassion under his neighbor. But instead, what do we see? We see that he passes by on the other side. He ignores him. He avoids the man. Now, we're not told in the scriptures, in the story here, why he avoids the man. Christ doesn't elaborate for us. But you know, at the very least, we can say that he avoids him because he doesn't want the inconvenience of helping this man. It's an inconvenience to stop. You know, it's going to mess up his day, mess up the time he'll get home. He doesn't want to inconvenience himself. This man is a headache. This man is an interruption to his plans. You know, whatever the reason, the point Christ is making is that this man didn't show love. This priest, this so-called servant of God, ignored his neighbor. Next, we see a Levite comes along the road, verse 32. And likewise, a Levite when he was at the place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. Now, the Levites, they were the priest's helpers. And so this man is also a religious man. Both of them are religious. And he comes down the road after the priest, and the Levite here appears to be a little bit more interested, doesn't he? He at least goes and has a look. He stops and has a look, but it's nothing more than curiosity. Because after he's gazed upon the man, what does he do? He crosses to the other side and he passes on by. And so like the priest before him, the Levite had no compassion. He had no compassion, no love for the injured man. He didn't consider this man to be his responsibility. He was an inconvenience. You know, in the priest and Levite, Christ is picturing for us the response of those who had a narrow view of what it meant to love your neighbor as yourself. He's picturing the response of this lawyer. That's who he's picturing here with these first two. This is how the lawyer, this is how the religious leaders of the day would have responded in a situation like this. You see, these are two men who knew the law, like the lawyer, and according to their narrow view of the law, they felt they were justified. 
in their actions. Butler said this, The hardness of these two men was encouraged by the narrow limits of their neighbour definition. And that definition would also soothe their warped consciences that they had no obligation to help. The fact that it was religious leaders who demonstrated this hardness of heart would especially gain the lawyer's attention. The lawyer was a leader in the Jewish religion and, and was part and parcel of this twisted defining of a neighbor. You see, the priest and the Levite pictured perfectly the attitude of this lawyer and his fellow religious leaders. They had no compassion. They didn't see the needs of others. They didn't love their neighbor as they ought. And the reason was they didn't think it was their responsibility. And finally, the Lord's story now, we see the Samaritan comes down the road. Let's read it again, verse 33. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him. And went to him and poured, uh, bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And on the morrow when, the, when he departed, he took out two pence, and gave them to the host, and said unto him, Take care of him. Whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I will repay thee. Samaritan is next down the road. Now before anything else, it's important for us to remember that the Jews and the Samaritans hated each other. They're enemies. The Jews despised the Samaritans. They called them dogs. The Samaritans returned that hatred in kind. They didn't get along. They are enemies. This man in the ditch... He's a Jew. That's the implication of the story. He's an enemy of this man, the Samaritan, who comes down the road. And so for the Lord to now make the Samaritan to be the hero in the story, this must have shocked everyone. It's, it's a moment of shock. It's a moment of awe, isn't it? It gets their attention. If anyone switched off, they've switched back on now. They're listening. You see, the Lord does this deliberately to gain the man's attention. Because he's highlighting just how wrong his view of the law really is. And just how wrong he is in his justification of himself. That a Samaritan acts better than he does. The Lord's giving us this great contrast here. You see, unlike the priest and Levite, the Samaritan, he's immediately moved with compassion, isn't he? Verse 33, and, But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him. He's already off to a better start. There's, there's movement in his heart when he sees this man in the, in the ditch. He sees the state he's in. He's moved to help him. It's interesting. He's not thinking about himself here, is he? He's not thinking about how inconvenient it is to his schedule. He's not thinking about how hard it will be to help this man. He's not thinking about himself. Rather, he sees someone who is hurting, he sees someone in need, and his heart goes out to him. He's moved with compassion. In verse 34, we see that compassion results in action. Verse 34, And he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn, and took care of him. He proceeds to bind up the man's wounds, to pour in medicine, oil and wine. He then takes him on his own beast to the nearest inn. But he doesn't just drop him off there. He then pays his bill as well, doesn't he? Verse 35. And on the morrow, 
when he departed, he took out two pence and gave them to the host and said unto him, Take care of him, and whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I will repay thee. And so he pays the man's bill as well. He says, and if there's any more, I'll pay it when I return. You see, this Samaritan was willing to sacrifice, wasn't he? This is what it means to love your neighbor. He was willing to sacrifice of himself, of his time, of his money, for someone he didn't even know, but more than that, for someone who was his enemy. You see, this is what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. It means you love all men, regardless of who they are, what they're like, you love all. And you show them this love and compassion. And seeking to make this application now clear, Christ concludes with a question. Verse 36, Which now of these three thinkest thou was neighbor unto him that fell among thieves? Now the, lawyer, the Lord here asks the lawyer, which of the three showed love unto the neighbor? And the answer, of course, is clear, isn't it? The Samaritan. We see that he answers that in verse 37. And he said, he that showed mercy on him. There really was no other answer he could give. You know, if you like, the, the lawyer's been backed into a corner, hasn't he? There's really no other answer he can give at this point. Christ had shown him clearly that his narrow interpretation of the law was incorrect. And he was in sin. Like it or not, Christ had given him the answer to his question, who is my neighbor? It's all men, even if they are my enemy. And at this point, Christ now challenges him, doesn't he? Verse 37 says, And he said unto him, He that showed mercy on him, then said Jesus unto him, Go and do thou likewise. Christ ends with a challenge. Go and do thou likewise. You know, this challenge tells us that the man hadn't been doing this. He says, go and do likewise. He hasn't been doing this. This man hadn't been showing this kind of love unto his neighbor. And therefore, he was guilty according to the law, wasn't he? If you offend him one point, you're guilty of all. He's guilty before God. He's a sinner. He stood condemned. But the writes this, the lawyer certainly was not going to gain eternal life through keeping the law, for he failed miserably to love his neighbor rightly. And if you do not love your neighbor, you certainly do not love God. Go to First John with me, First John 4. First <clears throat> John 4 and verse 10. That's the right verse. Right, verse 20, sorry. First John 4, verse 20. If any man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And this is the commandment we have from him, that he who loveth God love his brother also. So the truth is, if you don't love your neighbor, then you don't love God. You've broken both of these two vital commandments. The point is, this man, this lawyer, stood condemned. And the right response at this point in time should have been to fall down before the Lord and to say, Lord, what must I do to be saved? What then? If I can't keep the law perfectly, what then must I do? What, what, what can I do to be saved? 
You know, sadly, we're not told the lawyer ever did, are we? The story ends. So the implication is that he walks away unsaved. I wonder today if there is anybody here this morning who, like this lawyer, you're here and you're thinking that you can earn your way to heaven by your good works. If you're here and you're thinking that this morning, you know, the reality is that no one can perfectly keep the law. Even if you define it by those two, love God and love one another, none of us can perfectly keep the law. No one can love God perfectly. No one can love their neighbor perfectly as the law demands. We're all sinners, guilty before God, and we need the free gift of salvation that he offers unto us. We read the verse before, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. I don't know about you, but praise God, we don't have to work for our salvation. Because I'd be condemned. I'd be lost on my way to hell. The only reason I have eternal life is because of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if you're here today and you've been thinking that the gospel of the good Samaritan will get you to heaven, it's actually the opposite. It condemns you to hell. Because you cannot keep the law. The only way of salvation is to admit you're a sinner before God and cry out in faith and ask Him to save you. If you're here today, I plead with you to trust in Him before it's eternally too late. But you know, for those of us who are saved today, because of our faith in Christ, we've entered into a new relationship with God. We now have the Holy Spirit dwelling within. And now by His power, we can begin to live in accordance with the law. It is indeed God's desire that as believers, we show His love unto those around us, that we behave like the Good Samaritan. And it's something that's possible for us to do because of Christ, because of the Holy Spirit dwelling within. But you know, it will only happen as our relationship with Him deepens. You see, as we love Him more, we will then love our neighbor as we ought. Indeed, one commentator summed it up really well. He said, loving my neighbor is visible evidence of my relation to God. Loving our neighbor is evidence that we have a relationship with God. If we don't have that relationship with God, you can't possibly love your neighbor as God says. Only after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit within can we possibly begin to obey these laws that God's given to us. Let's close this morning with a word of prayer. Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word today. Lord, we thank you for the challenge here this morning in the parable of the Good Samaritan, a, a challenge that is so often missed. So often we read this story and all we see is just a challenge to be charitable unto others. But Lord, the gospel of the Good Samaritan never saved anyone. Lord, none of us can keep your law. Lord, the Lord condemns us. It separates us from you. But Lord, we thank you so much that because you loved us, you sent your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ to provide that way of salvation. Lord, I pray earnestly today if there's anybody here this morning who doesn't know you, that today you'd work in their hearts. You'd help them to see that they stand guilty, condemned before you. They can't perfectly keep the law. There's only one way to be saved, and that is to cry out in faith unto you. Lord, work in hearts, we pray in Jesus' name.